The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. Hey, do you want to listen to the gist at home on your Alexa? Turns out we at Slate have built a new Alexa skill. We're perfecting it. So what you do is you say, Alexa, enable the gist to enable the skill on your Alexa device, and then you begin playing the show. And to play it after that, you can say, Alexa, play the gist. First enable, then play it just on the Alexa. It's Friday, January 10th, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Marianne Williamson is out. Yes, yes, I know we have the articles of impeachment sent to the Senate. That is bigger, but Marianne has ascended upon the astral plane and shall not be there to speak to the yearnings of our souls or the doings of the Department of Housing and Urban Development. You know, that also comes with the job of president. In 1980, when Ted Kennedy bowed out, here's what he promised Democrats. For all those whose cares have been our concern, The work goes on, the cause endures, the hope still lives, and the dream shall never die. Marianne can perhaps offer the self-actualizing sustains, the healing permeates, the geodesic dome surrounds and penetrates us, the chanting has never stopped. Look, I kid because I fear. Really, I do. She got all these editorials saying that the way she speaks must be copied. Forbes, what Marianne Williamson can teach every Democratic candidate for president. Any candidate who doesn't understand how to lead with soul should get out of the race. You're wasting our time. Yeah, it was dumb. Emily Stewart in Vox. Is it me or is Marianne Williamson making a lot of sense? Nah, it's actually neither. The Washington Examiner. Democratic debate shows conservatives could learn something from Marianne Williamson. Uh... You guys are doing fine without her. You've got your own cult going. Here's John Iadirola on the Young Turks podcast. It's far from the joke, I would say, than, that many people have pitched it as. Yeah, and she's, I have to tell you, I've, I've spoken with her extensively even before she ran for president, and she's actually a very substantive person. She knows her stuff on a number of issues. My last voice was host Crystal Ball. And I will not be making a crystal ball likes Marianne Williamson joke because I do not want to detract from the real joke, which was Marianne Williamson's presence in the race as anything other than a fringy, highly unqualified distraction. The entire basis of lauding Williamson for deserving to be there was entirely about, oh, I like those three sentences she uttered in a debate. And now it seems, I will acknowledge, it seems churlish and beside the point to look back to a debate that happened in late July and to draw many conclusions from it to say, see, I told you so. That's not what I am doing. Though I have to say, if we were to go back in time, it would be okay with Marianne because she believes in past lives and reincarnation. She said once, quote, I believe linear time is itself an illusion. I will have to use that one the next time I am 12 minutes late to a meeting. By the way, she went on to say about, she was asked about Jesus. She said, To the extent which one can speak of reincarnation in any meaningful way, I feel that perhaps I was one of the women who followed him, who adored him, who lived for him, because I feel that I'm that now. But my main point is to remember there were these raft of articles, this legion of analysis saying, hey, is Marianne Williamson making sense, making good points? Can we learn something? No, no, and no. Let us remember the fodder all of thought at the fiddle-faddle peddled by this flibbity-gibbet of a flim-flam woman. I mean, in July and August, some part of the analyst class 
all wrote an, oh, that's so interesting and insightful, Marianne Williamson point. Let's remember that now. They were wrong. Let's also remember, as I made this point on my show just a few weeks ago, Tim Ryan talked about mental health and nutrition and wellness and married it to actual science and also actual legislation introduced. Marianne Williamson and the cautionarily pro-Marianne Williamson sentiment among the people in charge of taking politics seriously was as silly then as it seems now and had some costs, like she soaked up some screen time and also taking her really pernicious ideas seriously was a terrible thing to do. The Forbes article, by the way, said Donald Trump has our national soul in a stranglehold with his fascist rhetoric and immoral actions. The Democratic nominee for president needs to rest it back. No, 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 no. This isn't an exercise in the resting of souls. To believe such claptrap is to play into Donald Trump's game, a game of make-believe and self-defined reality and unprovable feelings and lies. Yeah, Marianne Williamson, like Donald Trump, And unlike the major planks of every single Democratic candidate left, Trump and Williamson were literally peddling lies. You will not beat Donald Trump by lying. You will beat Donald Trump by proving to Americans that you will make their lives better. Their lives now, currently, not ones that ended in, say, ancient Judea 2,000 years ago. On the show today, a spiel about two recent deaths of possibly the two most different people in New York. But first... They say a job stops being a job when you're doing what you love. But when the landlord asked for rent, it had better have been an actual job. That tension is at the heart of a new book called The Passion Economy. It's by my friend Adam Davidson. Adam is a regular guest of The Gist as recently as Monday. So Mr. Bookend of this week himself, Adam Davidson, is here to talk more about Amish farm supplies and less about the Cuds force. Well, I suppose that was a passion of theirs, too. Here now, Adam Davidson. A lot of the people on Etsy know it. A few of the Instagram people know it. But, you know, an accountant from South Carolina also knows it. And a son of a shoe salesman from MIT, he was the first one to put his finger on it. It's called the passion economy. And the idea is making money, doing what you love. But both of those things have to actually be true. Adam Davidson, who's a great financial reporter and the founder or co-founder of NPR's Planet Money, and you've heard him on the show a lot. He's been working on this book for many years, I think almost since I've known him. It is called The Passion Economy, The New Rules for Thriving in the 21st Century. It follows case studies of people who are doing it, but it also writes out the rules. So it's a little bit reporting. It's a little bit self-help. And it's a little bit of actually Adam's economic analysis of where we are in the 21st century. It would be weird if I was saying all this if he weren't here. Hello, Adam. Oh, hey, Mike. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, so where's this going? And now, ladies and gentlemen, my interview with Lorena Bobbitt. Um, So this is New Rules for Thriving in the 21st Century, but it's actually uh, coming together of sensibilities of centuries, isn't it? It is. So uh, as you know, Mike, and you met me we became friends, I'd say a full decade before mm-hmm. I started writing this book. So um, the um, much of my life for the last two decades has been covering really bad things and the ugliness of our economy right now. And, th- and that's a very real story. I've been on this show talking about it many, many times. Right. But throughout all that, I was aware of something else going on that I became sort of fixated on, which is a happier thing, another dimension to our very big and complicated economy. And so this book is my 
attempt to explain and celebrate this happier thing. So let's pick a case study. I like your Amish friends. That's a really great way to illustrate it. Sure. I love my Amish friends. <laughs> um, so, so the basic idea here is that there's an opportunity now to thrive in a way that no human being or almost no human beings were able to thrive ever before. And one way to talk about it is intimacy at scale, doing something that you are passionately connected to, that some other group of people is passionately connected to, and being able to find those people, even if they're spread thinly around the country or around the world. And that the very forces that terrify us, global trade and outsourcing and automation and AI, can also fuel this. It can mm -hmm. allow you to find your people somewhere. So uh, what I talk about is the Wengert family. There's, there's this guy, Wayne Wengert, who is an older, almost 70-year-old, old order Amish. So that means, you know, no electricity in the house, no cars, horse and buggy. Um, and he identified back in the 70s that Amish farmers who want to, who farm by horse and plow, they don't use tractors, were no longer able to get stuff. That there are about half of American uh, farmers still farm by horse or donkey through world into World War II. And so there was still enough stuff around, but by the late 70s, the, all that stuff was rusted and gone. And so he started making stuff for the Amish community. Now, today there are fewer than 350,000 Amish in the world. They're all, almost all in North in in uh, the U.S. or Canada, and of them, fewer than ten percent farm for a living. And worse, it's yes, we know about Lancaster County, but the Amish are actually very thinly spread, and the farmers are particularly thinly spread. The people who want to farm are leaving Lancaster County and Holmes County, Ohio, and they're going to upstate New York. They're going out to Wisconsin. They're going to they're in 31 states in Kentucky and Michigan and out west, increasingly in Colorado and Wyoming. And this is insane to create a big, bulky, expensive product, a, 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 a decent plow for a horse drawn farm equipment can cost five to twenty thousand dollars. Amish typically make thirty or thirty-five thousand dollars a year. So you're talking about an audience of thirty-five thousand people who make well, well, well below the average household income, and just shipping to them is impossible. Yeah, it's and big, heavy stuff. But what the Wengerts have discovered is it's exactly the things that make this a nightmare business that make it such a successful business because he's so deeply connected to these people. He understands their needs. He's able to anticipate their needs. And so he's able to create products that, yes, are wildly expensive that might cost a year's wages, but are adding so much value because he understands the value they need. Right. A family moves because there's cheap farmland and suddenly finds out that all their old gear doesn't work anymore. Yeah. And he's able to anticipate what they need. He's an honest, decent businessman, so he's not going to charge them an arm and a leg, but he's going to charge them a reasonable price. And he's doing it without using computers, barely use phones, but he's able to take advantage of all the things that we do have. So just one example is there's a logistics revolution. We know about UPS and FedEx, probably XPO is the unsung hero of this kind of thing, where they're able to basically get really big, bulky stuff from one rural farm area to a very far away rural farm area at a fraction of the cost it would normally cost. That's a result of modern technology. That is... 
This book works very well on the micro level. I read it and I didn't I don't particularly think of myself as an entrepreneur, but I do what I do. And there are some lessons in there in terms of pricing, in terms of a lot of things that are really applicable. And I think even if you don't think of yourself as, oh, I got this passion to make these special potholders on Etsy, even if you don't think of yourself, you could get a lot from the book. But I want to talk about the macro since you think about the macro. Do you think of this, this passion economy came about because of many different trends, but do you think of it like um, a way forward, uh, a way forward to boost the GDP? Or do you think of it more like, look, there are these huge disruptions and they're mostly are going to be losers. But if you don't want to be one of them, here's a little bit of a, a an escape route for the fortunate few. I, I see them as both. I, I do think that at the macro level, we, we are at a point, a we, we have some major choices to make. I think that going forward in a big picture way, without some major changes, we could imagine massive inequality that leads to a form of oligarchic capitalism where an ever smaller few control ever mm -hmm. more resources. And we also could imagine moving forward into an economy where far more people have opportunity. So at the macro level... I have deep fear and I have deep excitement about the future. And I think it's not written. It's, it's These are choices to be made. Because I don't see the passion economy as I, – I, I don't know if it's the exact or um, a sufficient or in any way uh, an appreciable – um, cure for income inequality, corrective to income inequality. I definitely think that to some extent it's a consequence of income inequality. If we had all those massive systems paying out pensions, we wouldn't have as much income inequality. Um, but I wonder if you could say that if we rely too much on the um, and and foster the individual genius or you know passionate few. Does that necessarily, is that intention with taking care of the masses and the many? Because, you know, even if you have all these entrepreneurs who are taking your advice and doing it well, we still need legions of civil servants and teachers and cops and just actually people who, what they want to do is spend time with their family and maybe be the guy who works for the guy who's running the passion economy and not think about the big pictures. Be the metallurgist for an Amish fellow, not the Amish fellow who's making this great equipment. So I, I would say a few different things. Yeah. So so one thing I would say is this book is not my, here's how to fix the whole economy forever. Oh, I know, forever. I know. This is, but you think about this and you think about yeah. how to fix the economy, exactly. so I wanted to ask yeah. you so, but how, I, it, how it integrates. But what I will say is what I was very careful of is I chose people for this book who are not people who are just obviously destined for wealth. I mean, I remember I enjoyed reading the Jeff Bezos book, but you read about a guy who by was the time he- Princeton that he got his ideas for- Yeah, I'm yeah. now forgetting, but they talk about at five, everyone was like, this right. is a genius yeah. who's going to take over the world. Yeah. And then <laughs> he went from glory to glory to glory, and that's great. Good for him. But And that's interesting, and I enjoy reading it. In this book, I chose people who are unlikely heroes. There are- these are not people who were born to very rich parents, inherited their dad's company, and then went to Harvard and then went to Stanford Business School. These are people who some of them didn't graduate college. Some of them didn't graduate high school. Many of them went to, you know, not elite schools. These are people who worked up. So the idea of this book is not just here's yet another book about how to be really, really rich. And I would say that the previous economy, the 20th century economy, was uniquely good in human history for um, p 
people with less likelihood of being successful. Now, that might seem weird because we had a lot of very poor people. We had a, you know, we, we had deep poverty in Appalachia right. and, um, and inner cities, et cetera. But generally, there are almost no groups in the U.S. that didn't get richer over the course of the 20th century. And we did eliminate things like hunger as a major source of death in the U.S. We, we, and part of that is Social Security and welfare and minimum wage. And part of that is just the 20th century widget economy needed – Factory workers. Uh, needed and yeah, factory un, sweepers. Undifferentiated, and fa- non-skill labor. Not that it wasn't hard work, but yes. And this economy does not need those people. So I don't think everyone gets to have a passion economy business. I'm not that naive. And, and probably a sizable percentage of Americans, we are as a society going to need to decide what to do with them. Now, in my view, you know, I tend to be left of center. I would support you know, a far more generous welfare state for those people. But I don't think that's where we're headed right now as a society. Okay, so I have a couple other questions. One is this. Does your passion have to be specialized? Does it have to be niche? Are there some passions that the is are not going to succeed in the passion economy, even though they're very artistic and very you could be very passionate about it? Yes, and I am certainly not arguing that all you have to do is find your passion. And whatever it is, you're going to do great. And you're going to make $437,000 a year and, and everything's going to be fine. That is not my view. And you know, I've started having a saying that until there's an Excel spreadsheet with numbers that show positive growth, like it's not going to work. Mm-hmm. And you do have to respond to the market if you want to succeed economically. Like you, you just do. And hopefully that can actually enrich your passion if you're truly engaged with customers and and satisfying their needs. You'll learn more about the thing you're passionate about, whether it's farm equipment or how to be a more effective accountant or whatever. So – of the – there are specific rules there, and you started your own company, which is sort of the uh, bespoke imprint of Sony Podcasts with a name I still don't understand. Three Uncanny Four. Why? Um, it's a long story that doesn't okay. get more interesting. With a name I still don't understand. Fine. Yeah. Uh, as you were, you were writing the book and compiling the rules and also starting your own company, which of your rules did you personally – do you personally find it hardest to follow? Well, my co-founder, Laura Mayer, who used to – run Panoply. She and I, from the very beginning, had a view that we wanted to create shows where there's a real driving need for it to exist, which means that there's a person creating it who has a passion and a hunger to do that. And there's an identifiable audience that wants that thing. And that simple idea actually becomes very profound and allows us to make a lot of decisions that might seem even counterintuitive. It allows us to say no to some really amazing opportunities. There's, you know, there was one major celebrity who I would kill to work with, who wanted to work with us, but we just felt that person was not, they really were like, hey, I hear podcasting is hot. Let's yeah. do a podcast. Um, so I, I think keeping that at its core, that it doesn't mean it has to be my passion. In fact, it shouldn't be my passion or Laura's passion. It should be... Um, usually the host's passion, but it could also be a producer's passion. There has to be a, a center, a person who has an urgent need. So what was the rule that you didn't follow, that you found it hardest to follow? So I'd say the, the hardest to follow is say no. The hardest to follow is say no. It is really hard. So you said no to this celebrity. We said no to this celebrity. Yeah. And the idea that anyone on our team would be doing something they don't 
want to do or they don't feel excited about um, that it, it just felt like it would hurt the company, even if it meant we'll make less money by saying no to some of these things. We still decided it's worth it. Adam Davidson is the co-founder of NPR's Planet Money. He is the uh, founder and CEO of a ridiculously named, very successful imprint of Sony Podcasts, and he is the author of The Passion Economy, The New Rules for Thriving in the 21st Century. Thank you so much, Adam. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. I've been thinking about a couple of people who died recently, I I would say they couldn't be more opposite, except they both asked for attention and we gave it to them. One was the author, Elizabeth Wurzel. She wrote Bitch and Prozac Nation. I knew her a little and she was what the kids call, and she is, and she was what the kids today call a lot. She was a lot, meaning a lot of talent, a lot of energy, just a lot. The thing that struck me is that what she did that was so dangerous back in the 90s has become so derogore now. Every scandalizing sentence that singed the reader in those books, now just about every writer for Jezebel's Twitter bio just as pointed. It was rebellious. It was outrageous. It was in your face. It was unapologetic. It was, this is important. This is, this is, this is the main thing that was so rare then that is so common now. It was It was a shocking public admission of flaws and frailties and missteps, and she paired that with excoriations of systems and celebrities and people who wronged her. It was a sight to see. We now call this the internet, and it's so prevalent and all around us we can't even see it. I would say that every woman who writes boldly in public was directly influenced by Elizabeth Wurzel, or maybe they weren't influenced at all. Maybe she just did the thing she did, and then, in a wave, uh, one to three decades later, so many other women started to write and speak and act and be like that. It's odd. As one of the people who was paying attention then, and who has been thinking of the role she played, to realize just how much of a template she was, but then to further realize that so many of the writers that she was a template for barely even know it. I'm glad she was on the cover of The Times. Also widely covered was this guy. Ladies and gentlemen, Imus in the morning. Now, weirdly, by this guy, I do mean Don Imus. I don't mean Neil Peart, the drummer for Rush, who was performing that song that you heard underneath deep-voiced announcer guy. Here's a clip of uh, the long-running shock jock talking on his syndicated radio program in 1994 about going to a Native American ceremony in New Mexico. So I say to Fred, is this Christmas or Halloween? (laughs) Don't tell Bridget Bardot about this. (laughs) And so Fred gets upset with me. And then they've got, uh, and the Indians are all, all the young Indians are so whacked out on peyote. (laughs) You know, their eyes look like, well, look like mine used to look. Right, frankly. I know the look. Yeah. So what is that all about? Well, Christmas Eve is actually more fun and, and kind of bizarre. I couldn't believe it the first time I saw it. They run through the streets of Taos with a statue of the Virgin Mary and the baby Jesus and shoot guns off. And I thought that was kind of an interesting image. Are the Indians into Jesus? Kind of, yeah. It's their own version of Catholicism. They, they whacked out. They don't care. See, that's another thing. They've all, they've all destroyed the Indian heritage there. Mm. That clip was just a random one I found from a C-SPAN simulcast has a lot of the DNA of Don Imus. He was gruff. He was grumpy. 
and his sidekicks were what you would call at the time un-PC, allowing Imus to have some 90s version of plausible deniability with the jokes they made that definitely went over the line. He'd have his sidekicks do celebrity impressions to tread into the world of insults, and then he would be the guy who said, oh, oh, come on now. Speaking of that, hey, Mr. Ma, let me ask you this. All right. When do most Jewish men stop masturbating? I don't know. When their wives pass away. Come on here. I mean, we just, why are we having That was sidekick Bernard McGurk as Cardinal O'Connor. He'd have a fake Nixon call in. The I'm a Show featured a gangsta rap version of Mickey Mouse. Mm. Here was in-house impressionist Rob Bartlett as Mike Tyson. Uh, morning, Mr. Trump. Don't make piggies. Don't make piggies on the program. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I, I'm, I'm a little indigestion. Okay, what's going on? Did you see my man, Bibi Netanyahu, with the president the other night? Bibi got served, yo. Obama was like, here's my demands. You marinate on that while I go upstairs, have some macaroni and cheese with my babies, my baby mama, and her mama. (laughs) Left Bibi sitting there like he waiting for the cable guy to show up. It is obvious why Imus was called a shock jock or controversial or embattled. He lost his MSNBC gig for calling the Rutgers women's basketball team nappy-headed hoes. And as a result... Some of the longtime titans of media who would always go on a show stayed away for a little while. He then moved to Fox Business, and everything pretty much continued apace. The thing about Imus is, and the thing I find fascinating, is that he wasn't funny. I don't mean that I was offended, I don't get offended, but I actually think, and I do actually think that some of the bits were Cardinal O'Connor, not the joke I played, but more or less, that was a highlight of the show. But to get there, he had to wade through growly, grumpy, angry dyspepsia. I remember I was 12 years old, 11 or 12. I think this is right. When, fifth grade, 10, 11, 12. And I was, uh, I was doing a camp thing for two weeks in Pennsylvania. And I went to a state fair or some version of a fair. And there was the radio station there, WOMP, Womp in the Valley. They were doing one of these live remotes from the state fair. And I walked up and I talked to the DJ. And he said, where are you from? And I said, New York. He said, oh, you get Imus. This was about the time that he was a big deal in radio. And I said to him, yeah, we get Imus. And everyone talks about Imus. But they have... This other guy on WNBC, Howard Stern, that guy's much better. The guy had never heard of him. And by the way, Howard Stern loathed Imus because the radio station valued Imus over Stern, paid Imus more than Stern, punished Stern more than Imus, and Stern knew the whole time that he was funny and Imus wasn't. But the reason I was thinking all about this wasn't exactly because I wanted to see at which temperature his obituary was cooked. It kind of changed and they had to uh, walk back controversial to racist in some outlets. But I got to thinking, what was it about Imus that people liked? I mean, he did get good ratings. He was a success. And I, even then, and by the way, even then, extended into my adulthood, he was on the air in New York uh, pretty much my whole life. I think I know what funny is and means. I definitely understand politics. I, by the way, didn't just write him off as purely offensive. I recognize that he was, objectively speaking, offensive and presiding over an offensive radio program. But, and this is important, it was also uninteresting. And it was uninteresting in an interesting kind of way. I often think about entertainment that confuses me. 
I understand some of it. Sometimes it's just stuff that's not for me. The Medea movies, not for me. That's kind of the point. I also get why there's a big audience for Drek like Full House or Fuller House. It's a Brady Bunch for a different generation. It's comforting and it's safe. Uh, every YouTube star that is supposed to cross over and I check them out, this Miranda Sings person, terrible, uniformly terrible. But I get it. It's an in-joke. She creates a community. I get all those things. But then I get stuck on stuff that is supposed to appeal to me and really doesn't, but appeal to so many other people. Imus talks sports fairly in depth, and they were New York sports. He had on Mike Wallace. He had on, you know, senators who were my senators. He was on C-SPAN, for God's sake. I think it was the anger. I think that if a show vibrates just on a different wave level than you, it just can't work. Imus was this growly and then later in his life, phlegmy cowboy in New York, seeming not at all to enjoy any aspect of life. Howard Stern would goof on people, but some of his targets were my targets too. Other angry sports talkers on the radio station that WNBC became, WFAN, they'd get angry at coaching decisions. And you know what? Sometimes those coaches were wrong. I think we can get on board when someone else's enthusiasms aren't your own. Sometimes they could win you over. Sometimes it's just fun to revel in it. But it is harder to find kinship when someone's hatreds aren't your own. Then it begins to seem not like truth-telling, but just off-putting. Don Imus was 79. He's in the Broadcasting Hall of Fame. And that's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader produces the gist. He mourns the recent passing of Juice World, Big Bird, Sleepy LaBeef, and Pigfoot Mary. The gist. In a past life, I was a data-driven scientist who absolutely did not believe in reincarnation. And in my next life, I will be an aphid with almost zero cognition. So I'll still be in the right. Oomperu depru dupru, and thanks for listening.